Although, yeah, we probably should do it so that the person who's introducing it is it's their sort of preferred movie. But <laughs> fuck that Again, up. Again, it doesn't matter. No one knows. Oh, well, they know. <laughs> who's the Christopher I... Nolan fan, you know? Well, yeah. I could have picked it because I wanted to discuss how much I dislike Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't matter. Three, two, one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. No running in the hallway. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre flicks. My name's Joseph, and here's my co-host, Lydia. Hello. Hey, hi. How are you? Um, so they found 200... <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say? No, it's just like a really weird pause. Yeah. So they found... 215. Oh, I do know what you're going to say. Bodies of kids. Yeah. Buried, I believe, at one of the residential schools here yes. in Canada. That is where. Um, because our history is shit. Yeah. And it's tough. And we have Canada Day coming up in a month. And that is tough to reconcile. Yeah. I mean, Canada Day has also consistently been getting more and more tense and fraught given, yes. you know, our obvious colonial past, but this is rough. And the way that our government is handling it is not great. A lot of flags at half mast, a lot of um, government officials being like, this is a tragic day for us, but nobody's like sending in forensic teams to identify these children and return them to their families so they can be like properly buried or so these like indigenous communities can perform appropriate rituals. None of that's happening. They're also not investigating any of the other historic buildings that were used as residential schools to determine if there are bodies at those schools. Like it's 215 children. So like at that point, it feels less like one individual at a school is just like a serial killer murdering children and more like this was yeah. a practice within Absolutely. that residential school and like what are the odds that this wasn't like just a practice in general amongst residential schools but no one's no one's really investigating that mm -hmm. so that blows that feels pretty fucking disgusting canada's relationship with the indigenous peoples of canada is just horrendous and has only taken small steps in the very recent uh, past to make any kind of reconciliation. Well, I mean, those those starlight tours that were happening in like Saskatchewan and stuff were going on until a year or two ago. Like there were, I think, I think in like 2020 or 2019, no, it was 2020 um, in January. So right before the pandemic hit, the body of like two indigenous people was found dead from exposure, no shoes, half their clothes missing and in the middle of fucking nowhere. And that's the starlight tours. And that's basically what that is, is when the police in those areas pick up indigenous men and boys in particular, and just drive them out into the middle of fucking nowhere in winter. And it gets cold as all hell in the prairie provinces because it's all flat land. And they take their shoes, they take their coats and they leave them to die from exposure or if they can survive, to walk back. And if they do make it back, they have frostbite and hypothermia. It's, it's an issue that terrifies me to my core in the sense that even if Canada weren't perpetuating massive amount of horrors, which it is, the general colonial relationship of having taken their homes, taken their things, and yes, there's reservations, but none of the treaties that were originally met are being followed at all. No. Everything is in complete control of the Canadian government 
just doing whatever it wants for whatever's convenient for pipelines, convenient for uh, farmland, convenient for us. Logging. And there is no no relationship with the, with, like, as though they are another country that we're actually negotiating with. It's complete oppressor-oppressed relationship. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I do think that that's true in most of these, like, westernized, colonized countries with, like, indigenous, aboriginal, and native communities in those countries. That's not an excuse to say... Sure, but that doesn't No, I'm us. not saying it does. I'm saying that this is a commonality that we share with countries like the U.S. and others. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me so much. As Canadians, we love to sit down and watch world news, watch American news, and think, oh, well, like, thank God I don't live in the U.S. Thank God, like, my country is so much better. We don't have the racism that, like, these other countries deal with. And that's simply not true. We're just, like weirdly ingrained in our Canadian culture to be too polite to actually discuss and acknowledge the fucking issues that exist here. And they've existed here for hundreds of years between these residential schools that didn't actually get shut down until 1997 when the last one finally closed to like Mm -hmm. Robert Picton being able to be a mass serial killer for multiple decades because he was only murdering indigenous women and sex workers. We often get praised from like in leftists because we're like five years, 10 years ahead of the curve on things like gay marriage or, you know, certain types of rights and stuff. But being 10 years ahead of horrors is not exactly praiseworthy, you know, and even that is not always true anyways. Um, And we have specific things that we are terrible at. Also, our history with mental illness is famously terrible uh, across the world. Um, are because we were gung-ho with lobotomies and asylums. We had some of the best, you know, top-the-line, state-of-the-art asylums. Ironically, we actually still do have the best mental health facility Mm. in North America. It is actually an amazing mental health facility. It's in our hometown. But, like, they're, they're not horrifying and terrible. Like, they're not forcing lobotomies and, like, really horrible treatments on people anymore. But it's just kind of amusing fact that we still do have some of the best mental health facilities in the Western world. Yeah. I think even though this was a known secret for forever since I, since I've known about it, we knew about the things we didn't have the forensics for it before. Um, I'm hoping that like BLM and like other uh, Me Too movement, that these issues stay in the public consciousness and are you know uplifted and thought about and that People actually make, and I'm struggling with this myself, people actually make sacrifices or reflect on these things and what can actually be done. Um, but yeah, I mean, horrible segue and stuff like that. But, you know, we are a... Weirdly, weirdly heavy start. I mean, I'm into it. Yeah, it's it's say, stuff yeah. we need to no. talk about. It's just, you know, real intense. We are a indie movie podcast so um we're gonna start getting like we're gonna get back there people are gonna start tweeting at us being like i fucking hate when they get political they're supposed to they're just the movie people Mm. tough shit (laughs) listen to me rant about my terrible country i mean you know movies and stuff are political too or at least in my view and that's part of the reason we watch them we're trying to see how opinions and stories have changed and see if they actually changed in the right ways. No, I do agree with you. I mean, I feel like, A, I, like, people have agendas. Every person has an agenda. Every artist mm-hmm. has an agenda. They have something mm-hmm. that they want to say with their art. Now, once art exists in the public forum, I do agree that it's open to interpretation, right? Like, as long as oh, yeah. you can back up your argument or your claim with evidence found within the source material, then Yeah, sure. A hundred percent. You have every right to do that. But every artist who creates something has intention of some kind behind it. And I think that, you know, that's why we love movies. We love discovering the real like heart within a film, which is kind of amusing to talk about immediately after our Tenet episode, where I was talking about how Christopher Nolan is devoid of any warmth or heart (laughs) in his subject matter. Well, and I've, I'm about to talk about the new Disney movie, Cruella, mm. live action, um, which I really, really enjoyed. So I'll start that from the get-go. But what I want to say is I've had a lot of conversations with people, especially around Mulan and Disney in general, about 
who like what they are as a company and you know regardless of my views on this movie and how they did on it it's another thing to think about about the companies of the that you're consuming these media from and i have friends who are trying to boycott or are boycotting disney because of some of the horrors that they're perpetuate especially with mulan and and um, the relationship with china which we've talked about before yeah i mean i think with disney even more than that like i disney I do agree, lacks tact in certain areas. I don't think they necessarily have worked as hard to understand global impact of like some of their work. I think for image purposes, they are trying to remove themselves from their racist past. Yeah. I think some of those things are good. I think some of those things were moments for education that they didn't take because it was easier to just remove the product than have a discussion about how like, hey, historically, Disney has perpetuated microaggressions and racist stereotypes. Let's mm-hmm. let's break that down. Let's acknowledge that that existed and then move forward. I, I feel like that's a misstep, but, you know, they're a huge corporation. They're a conglomerate. They're just concerned about bottom lines. It's unsurprising to me. One of the things that frustrates me about Disney, because I do consume their content, right? Like, I love the MCU. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have Disney movies from when I was a kid that I love. I love Princess and the Frog. Like, there, there are so many things that are encapsulated in yep. Disney that I still enjoy now. But I have such a frustrating time and a, and a genuine concern around the monopoly that they're trying to curate in the entertainment industry because that those kinds of things a monopoly in in an artistic field it stifles creativity in my mind you know like disney has a Mm -hmm. formula they have a rating system that they're willing to go to they don't do r-rated they don't do like tvma television and i just i worry as they gain more traction in the entertainment industry, as they buy more studios and production companies, are we going to be losing genuine voices through that process? Yeah. Now, they are hiring people like Chloe Zhao to do their movies in, in the MCU, in Disney, in Star Wars. They have a lot of women, a lot of diverse voices now, but they have such a strict corporatized formula for the media that they produce. In the last episode, this is what I basically was worried about when when you were talking about that. I do think Disney has a better brand and has better control and keeps a a good like a good quality to their their stuff in general. But Netflix, one of the things I like about them is not only them being a new player to the original content scene, relatively speaking, um, and adding to that sphere, but that they do allow a very uh, long leash to mm-hmm. their properties, and so that does create a type of creativity, even if it leads to a lot of misses. Yeah. And I think Netflix is another one that it frustrates me in a different way because I don't think Netflix is going to monopolize the entertainment industry at this point. They're so far Mm -hmm. behind. The thing that irritates me with Netflix when you stack them up with something like Disney is that Netflix doesn't totally understand the original content formula, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. so used to just buying up properties and putting them on their streaming platform. They don't, actually really understand the formula behind writing a movie or a TV series and making it something of consistent quality. They have some real winners that have come out. Stranger Things was phenomenal. I'm thinking of ending things was pretty good. Like it was a pretty solid effort. But then they have things like Bright and mm-hmm. Hubie Halloween. And and they just they get these massive names on retainer and they don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to write competitive films or longstanding television series that are of a high quality. And when they do get something good, like the OA that people love or um, altered carbon that people love, if it's not bringing in enough new subscribers, they just cancel it. They just chuck it out the window. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just as dangerous as this monopoly, because at that point, you're not trying to encourage creativity. You're just watching data and analytics. You're just reporting on numbers. And when you don't see that spike that you want, you bail on anything with any kind of creative like integrity. Yeah. So that's that's no better in my mind. And it's almost 
more frustrating mm-hmm. because at least Disney consistently puts out something like an entertaining product. Whereas Netflix is so hit and miss and you can tell that they don't give a shit about quality. They just care about numbers. And those numbers are solely new subscribers. They don't give a fuck about churn and burn or customer retention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've been fairly successful. But yes, there is a bunch of uh, concerns. Uh, <laughs> Cruella. So, starring Emma Stone as Cruella. Uh, and it's an origin story of sorts. And yeah, director is Craig Gillette. I can't even pronounce your last name. Oh my God. Gillespie. Gillespie. Jesus. Yeah. I don't know. It's, no it's relation. The P to a B. Yeah. P to a B just gets my tongue twisted. Craig Gillespie. And also amazing in it is Emma Thompson as the Baroness, who Love plays her. the Meryl Streep to her. Um, Anne Hathaway. Writing the actress's name. Anne Hathaway in. Devil Wears Prada, which is the simplest way to describe this movie. It is Disney's version of the Devil Devil's Wear Prada. You're having a time right now. Oh, yeah. Also good in it are Joel Fry and Paul Walter Hauser, who play her sort of found family as she, her mother dies early in the movie. And she's left orphaned and has to fend for herself. As Estella is her original name, we find out. And she, her alter ego is Cruella. And this is the sort of uh, difficulty of the movie. And one thing I'll say right away that I enjoyed could have been more sensitive. And there, I'm curious as to what the sort of neurodivergent um, community will say about this. But that she has this personality switch and that her, which is seemingly related to trauma and her revenge for her trauma and how her fan family reacts to this switchover is an interesting sort of tension of the movie where she is much more powerful and engaged and is able to get what she wants as Cruella and and just so driven and focused. But of course she's willing to do uh, more, much more morally gray things to, (laughs) to do it. But what I love about the movie is so she meets the Baroness as this amazing fashion designer who's just all about herself, pure narcissist, and she is all about creating this fashion brand and using Estella for her fashion brand and sees that Estella has this amazing ability. Um, but Estella doesn't want to just be a subordinate. So she, after learning some other revelations, turns to Cruella in order to begin her own brand and to rebel against the Baroness and have her own stage. And it's this amazing competition between the two. I've got to say, the the looks, the the show-stopping moments that they do to each other are incredible. Just the fashion is just so beautiful, so extravagant. You know, ju- the movie just for that sake, very much like Devil's Wears Prada. It's just uh, a, a, a movie for people who are enjoy that world. There's an amazing gay character at a vintage, or not a vintage store, a vintage store, but like a, a secondhand store, who's like, oh, of course I have, you know, 50s Dior and 60s Chanel. And it's like, okay. None of these stores have that stuff. Like, come on. But like, that's you know, that's true. the dream. That's the fantasy. There are some in our hometown because my mom is a huge thrifter. She got oh me a an original Balenciaga bag. I have oh a Versace Python leather wallet. Like, well, that shit exists in our hometown in the thrift stores. The movie is just extravagant. And that relationship between them, the Baroness basically says, you know, I want you to be powerful, to show me your inspiration. And you have to be cutthroat. To make it in this world, I need to see that you have the killer instinct. But of course, you can't kill me. You can't kill my brand. I would never let you do that. And that is such a classic narcissist or um, the powerful figure, authority figure trope that it's an impossible situation of they want you, you, they'll only respect you if you can defeat them, but they'll never let you defeat them. And they never want that to happen. So that trope, I think, is done so well here, and I and I really enjoyed it. It's still completely Disney. The other side characters and how everyone wraps up is great. The big concern, and this has been mentioned, I've seen it in the rumor mill and whatnot, that the actual origin story of who Estella is and what the storyline, the plotline is of this movie. Just really, like, forgiven her for the, like, dog murdering thing. The dog murdering thing comes up. It's, it's, it's rearranged to be much more understandable. And and she doesn't like she doesn't kill dogs in it. Yeah, as like basically it, it shows that 
but it's also given a a whole thing. I, yeah, it's too much to give away anything more. But I think the origin story is awful. Look, I'll, I'll admit it. But like, if you need a great origin story, like, sure. But like, it's a Disney movie, you know, just enjoy it for the extravagance, for the fun of the story itself. Right. So if you want a Devil Wears Prada that is Disneyfied, like, it's just so good. Emma Stone is incredible. Just exuberant the whole time. Loved it. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I am intrigued to watch it. I don't know if I'm like $35 to watch it, but... I watched it with my whole, like, with, with yeah, my whole and family. That's totally so that's how we it. justified it. Yeah. I haven't really watched anything new or exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go into one of my comfort watches. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a first time I've ever watched the show, but I did a full watch of... Uh, the entire series of White Collar, which mm. was a fairly popular TV show in the like mid aughts, ran for six yep. seasons, starring Matt Bomer in probably what would be his breakout role. And it's just it's I mean, it's like every other crime show that came out that time. It's very reminiscent of things like Bones and Castle that were all yep. on at the same time. It's one cop and one non-cop investigative person working cases together, basically. Well, even to today with Lucifer. I love Lucifer. <laughs> I just want, they've just released like a bunch of the new episodes from the like current season. So I just like blew through those. So good. I have nothing interesting to say about it, but it was, it was just like such a great end to the, uh, to that season. It was amazing. Anyway, so White Collar. It also has, from Sex and the City. Do you did you watch Sex and the City? Mm-hmm. Do you remember Stanford? Do you remember Stanford, Carrie's gay best friend? No. Short, balding. Okay, yes. He ends up marrying um the wedding planner, the Italian wedding planner. Anyway, so he's in this show as okay. like Matt Bomer's best friend. But essentially, it's it's very much a like TV series spin-off of Catch Me If You Can, you know, mm-hmm. where like there's a con man and forger who gets caught by the FBI, sent to prison, and he does like a work program with them where he wears an anklet and he gets to work for the FBI solving white collar crimes to work off his sentence. Nice. Super easy to understand premise, but it's so charming. And, like, I did, not too, too long ago, probably, like, midway point in the pandemic, I did a rewatch of Bones. Okay. Rewatching that show highlighted so many problematic things that I didn't notice the first watch through. Because I was in, like, high school when that show came out. And I just wasn't Mm -hmm. socially conscious or understanding of my own privilege. But they make some really offensive jokes about I vaguely remember you talking about this now like Middle Eastern people Muslim people um non-binary people like it's it was just weird and gross oh my god I remember how fucked up yeah you told me about that it was because they kept they physically invaded this person's space to try and determine their gender it was so gross and weird and there really wasn't as much of this if any in white collar which was surprising because the show came out around the same time and it's a crime show. Those are always mm-hmm. fraught with like really terrible jokes. And you don't get that as much. And I think it's because he's supposed to be this like high end forger and con man who's supposed to look really wealthy and luxurious and like charming to everyone. <laughs> when he said high end, I was like, hooker? I don't know. Yes, that too. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's if that's his high next show, society. I'll watch it. Yeah. Directed by Ryan Murphy, I'm sure. Um, oh yes, <laughs> he was he was in season four of. Um, Has Matt Boomer not been in fifty percent of Ryan Murphy's stuff? No, he's he's only been in one season of American Horror Story. He was in season that's surprising. four, um, American Horror Story Hotel. He was Lady Gaga's lover, but was also kind of gay. It was it was a confusing <laughs> character. It was not a very good season. No, not four. Four is Freak Show. Six, six is Hotel. Anyway, moving on. That's not important. Um, <laughs> it's it's really just like very easy to watch and really charming. And the characters are really fun. It's got this really great 
sort of like tenuous sense of found family between the Matt Bomer's character, the con man, his friend, who's also a con man, a criminal. And then these FBI agents, they form this sort of uneasy, tense alliance that turns into this right. really adorable family where like they don't really trust each other, but they love each other and believe in each other. And it's just so cute. <laughs> like It's just like really nice and lovely to watch. Plus, Matt Bomer's gorgeous, so yes, you know, of course. W- watch it for that alone. He's charming as hell. I've been watching on and off some episodes of Queer Eye with my mom, and literally every time Anthony's on the screen, mm-hmm. my mom is just like, oh my God, Anthony. Like, just, it's just like, we need this every time. And it's, uh, I love Queer Eye, but like yeah. every time Ant- Anthony is in that show, I'm like, cool, so what's he going to make, guacamole? Like, it's almost never does <laughs> he make an actual dish. Like, does he teach them an actual dish? It's always like, beyond that, yeah. Make this cool, like, sauce. <laughs> it's like, thanks. There is a sense to it because it has to be dishes that you know, these people can actually make um, as totally amateur chefs. But in addition, like, he didn't go to chef school or anything. So apparently, there's this big controversy behind the scenes where people are like, does he even deserve this position? He's just hot. And it's like, look, it's fine. Like, Dude, they didn't need a chef to be that position and they can replace him with any other hot guy. Like, fine. It's just he's the person they picked. Like, I feel I don't know. It's to me, it's not that big of a deal. (laughs) I mean, the fact that he is, you know, talking about nutrition and diet and teaching you Mm. how to cook and he has no like accreditations in nutrition, diet, like dietitian or he doesn't really give dieting advice, though, I don't think. But. I feel like you should have to have some kind of understanding of the human body to be able to like <laughs> give somebody unsolicited nutrition advice. Oh, it's solicited. But I also I also don't know like I don't know what Karamo's background is either and he's giving people mental health advice and I don't think he has like any experience in that either. So Yeah, I you know, I'm yeah, it's it's for entertainment. I don't know. Some people take it very seriously. I guess I just think like I know it's for entertainment, like... No, yeah. I mean, it's a reality show, you know? Like, so much of it is staged anyway because of the fact it's a reality show that I don't... It, it feels a little, like, nitpicky to dissect it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did have another thing I want to talk about, so I'm going to zoom on over there, which is... <laughs> Our segues are always so bad. Okay, no, sometimes they're good. <laughs> All of mine are good. Oh, my God. It's fine. You'll cut that out. So I watched Succession, the TV show, season one, with my mom. Yay. (laughs) Such a, like, wholesome moment sometimes. So it's written by Jesse Armstrong and a bunch of other people, which I wanted to point out because the writing is impeccable. Uh, Also, my mom and I call it set porn all the time. Like, the locations and shoots on this Mm. show are gorgeous at all times. And it stars Brian Cox as Logan Roy, who is the leader, 80-year-old leader of a massive media empire, which is kind of, I like to say it's Disney meets Fox News. He has four children who are now vying for power in the company, essentially. Big Dynasty vibes. You ever watched Dynasty? Yeah, so... The, the oldest is this guy named Connor who isn't as relevant. He is sort of lives off on a farm and doesn't try to get involved as much with the family anymore. But the three main ones are played by Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall, who is the sort of vice president of the company. And he is in line to become the next one. But he is a nervous wreck about it. And that's his sort of character. He feels so inadequate to his father's uh, wishes and that killer instinct his father wishes him to have and thinks that he can't survive in the real business world. He's been protected. Then the amazing Sarah Snook as Shaban, who is sort of always meant to be like sort of the mafioso's daughter, like is always given everything when it comes to her marriage life or this family life. And she is dating this guy named Tom, who is a, a guy in the company but the father doesn't think of him as much. He didn't come from money. And so he's just kind of a random guy in the company. And she is now in politics and trying to do her own thing. But that politics is now becoming a tension with the company, which is just great and adds another layer. And then the third is played by Kieran Culkin. Love! 
Yeah. Oh my god, I would have started watching it immediately if you told me it was Karen Culkin. <laughs> who plays Roman the youngest, who is just, you know, that youngest syndrome to a max. Mm. Just he just parties, does his own thing all the time, but like secretly is looking up and jealous of all the responsible older adults. He's like, why can't I be like them? Like I'm just as important. Mm. And so they're all vying for attention as as it begins that their father has a stroke. And okay. the power hole begins. The like what would happen if you know, he's out of commission for too long and they need to have a successor to the company. Right. And, uh, well, before he actually gets the stroke, and that is a sort of a mid-first episode spoiler, but before he gets that, they're discussing that Kendall was already going to be the next in line, but the father says, no, you're not ready. Mm. So Kendall is freaking out about it. So I love the show. I think it's incredible. It It took me a couple episodes because all the characters are beyond assholes. Like, it is just a cast of horrible people um, and very, like, just hard to listen to horrible. But as as you get into the depths of their characters, like, this is a show that really cares about psychology, really cares about people and their dynamics and family dynamics. And that the heart-wrenchingness of their father who wants them to have the best lives they can, but feels he has made them soft by giving them the sort of protective barrier to grow however they want to. Right. But now that they need to, they want to be independent, do their own thing, he doesn't believe them. He's like, you don't have the killer instinct. You don't have that thing. And that is so classic and so, uh, just so well done in this show as a real relationship that so many people are in and frustrated by. And their sibling dynamics are similarly both absolutely loving, but absolutely at each other's throats at all times because they have different interests in life and they don't always see each other. So they're, they're sort of trying to live their own lives. And they're like, you know, why do you have so much power over me? Like, what is these things? And it's because of their childhood or because of them having this family name, Roy. It would be like having the last name Disney. You know, it's like, you're just, you're a somebody. And every move you make is, is meaningful in a certain way. And the show just plays this all so well. Each episode, and I think this is part of the set porn thing too, how they design it is so well that they tend to gather about half to three quarters of the cast in different spots where they all have some kind of meeting. My fate, One of my favorite episodes is where there's a board meeting about a sort of possible big event in the company. And so you're tracking each and every character as they're deciding yes or no or abstain from the vote. And Kendall is going around just vying for everyone's vote to go for a certain way. And you're just seeing each of them like, have to make decisions about their position in the company. And the cast character is much bigger than the just the family. And they're all incredible. They all have their own goals, their own motivations. It's very House of Cards, Game of Thrones area of politics, but with much more family dynamics, family care. And uh, having just finished the finale, I'm glad I finished it because last episode, I was one episode away from the finale. But I'm glad I finished it because it ends off just spectacularly and I'm just so glad to have this another like a show with a perfect first season, like just amazing all the way through. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely watch it. It sounds really good. I'm excited for season two. We'll see where uh, where it goes. I don't know. I didn't check up what the seasonal status is, if it's ongoing, because it's pretty recent. So it might still be ongoing or it might have been canceled. I don't know. Mm. So, yeah, besides uh, White Collar, anything else you've been uh, up to recently? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't want to talk about it. Not really, but I'm gonna, um, I started, I haven't finished it, but I started a rewatch of Sons of Anarchy and I, I don't, I don't feel great about it. Why is that? I mean, like, here's the thing that's frustrating about it because it is a well-written show. Like it, it is well done. Yeah. I think I got through four seasons. Yeah. It's just, I've, I mean, it. There is no show more like geared to a male audience, like a straight male audience mm. than Sons of Anarchy. It's very like forthright with that. Um, and yet I I find it so captivating. I love the found family trope. Like it just it yeah. works so well for me. And that's what a motorcycle club is supposed to be. I mean, you love Kingdom, too. So I, I did another very, very uh, male centric. And again, it's just it's it's that family dynamic thing works so well Mm -hmm. for me and the characters in kingdom 
like the characters in Sons of Anarchy, though flawed, though imperfect, though like very problematic, are so rich and dynamic. Like they are very well developed. They all have their own passions, their own hobbies, their own lives outside of the club. And you get to engage with each of them on that level. So that's really captivating. Do I love the overt weird racism that comes up often? No. Or like the inherent misogyny in this particular motorcycle club? No, that's not not great. But I still love this stupid fucking show. And it's got some amazing actors in it. I mean, this was Charlie Hunnam's breakout role for America. And he starred in what it's like six seasons, all seasons of it. Ron Perlman is in it. Say what you want about him. I still loved him as Hellboy. I loved him Mm -hmm. in the third Aliens movie. Um, I greatly enjoy Ron Perlman and everything. And Katie Siegel, who is tremendous, the voice of Leela in Futurama. And that's what I was going to say. She's amazing in this. And there is an amazing in Kingdom 2. I don't know the actress's name, but their mom, I think, is also incredible. So even though, yes, absolutely both shows are very male energy, they both end up having at least one really strong uh, yeah. uh, actress. Yeah, it's just any side actress, any side female character that's in it is treated like absolute shit in both these shows. So that's not mm. great. It's not ideal that like the majority of scenes are all men. And when you do see a woman, it's like she's in her bra and panties and being like yeah, thrown off a pool table after being used as like a cum dumpster. I don't love that energy. It's not awesome, but it's... Don't love that language. Whatever. It's accurate representation. Bleep me if you this want. Is, this is this is the episode I'm sending your parents. Please don't. They don't need to know me. Not like this. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just a fun show. Like, it's good background noise for when I'm working and stuff. And like, the, the thing that I do find really engaging about it, and it, and I find it really funny is that the original premise of the show was supposed to be a modernized version of the story of Hamlet, of Shakespearean Hamlet. Okay. So that's, right. And I mean, when you think about it, it is, you know, it, the show's old, so I, I'm spoiling it. Tough shit. I don't know. But this whole uncle or surrogate father within the club takes mm-hmm. over after the original, like, head, king, whatever, of the club dies And the son is growing up under his reign and is starting to rebel against him and then starts Mm -hmm. finding out, you know, negative, frightening and horrible secrets about this man, leading him to the conclusion that he might have killed his father. And that's the entire premise of like the first three seasons of the show. It is the storyline to Hamlet. Yeah. And it like could not be more of a way to like force straight men into engaging with like Shakespearean plays, but it's still, (laughs) it's still, it's, it's like spoon feeding children with the Lion King. You know what I mean? Like it's still Hamlet. It's just, you know, Oh, they're not going to want to read Shakespeare. Let's make it motorcycles. Mm. Fuck off. Whatever. Um, But it's, it is really good. It's really fun. I did have one weird moment when I was watching it though, because there's an actor in it that I totally forgot was in this show named Johnny Lewis, who I loved when I was okay. younger. He was in, um, do you remember Hillary Duff's raise your voice? No, I do not raise your voice. Oh my God. No. Such a bad movie. It's, it's like camp rock before camp rock happened or like high school musical, mm-hmm. but all these like talented music kids go to this like fancy art school and then they have their little like found family. And anyway, he's in it. Doesn't matter. Um, I loved him when I was a kid. He was in this show for like the first season or two, but he died. And it was like, oh, wow. The strangest circumstances around his death. And it's just, it's always ingrained in my brain, but I forgot that he was in this show. But Johnny Lewis was in a motorcycle accident. Okay. And hit his head, you know, pretty hard, went to the hospital. They either didn't do a scan or didn't do a repeat CT um, before they released him. 
And shortly after being released from the hospital, he started exhibiting like really aggressive and erratic behavior. He got really heavy into drugs. He was drinking all the time. He was really like strange and hard to understand for people and like was just super erratic. And then out of the blue, he killed his landlady's cat and then murdered Mm -hmm. her in her apartment and then climbed up to the roof of the building and jumped off. Oh, Jesus. And I just, it's so bizarre. It's just so, it it is truly sad because if it does relate this to This episode a traumatic, has gone places. I know. It is truly sad though because he was talented. He was very funny and very charming. In this show, he was super adorable um, as the prospect. And he, like if it is related to a traumatic brain injury that just like was not appropriately treated, right. that's so sad. That's just awful. Like he didn't receive appropriate medical treatment after a terrible accident. And now he's forever remembered as the guy who like murdered his landlady and her cat. And that blows, man. He was 28. The one thing I remember about that sticks in my mind about Sons of Anarchy is the Knives or Fire uh, plot line. No, I don't know what that is. Um, Or they might have said it a different way, like cutting or fire. But it's about. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was in the first season. Yeah. Do you remember that? Is it in the first? I thought it might be the second season. But yeah, that stuck with me, traumatized me forever. I think so. So what Joseph is talking about, a guy who is banished, excommunicated from the club for, you know, screwing up a job and leaving people behind to get arrested. He, he has to give up his leather jacket that has the club name on it. And they all have a huge tattoo on their backs of the club name. When you get banished or excommunicated, you have to remove the tattoo or get it blacked in. Mm-hmm. They let him come back to the town to visit his ex-wife and their kids because she still lives there. She divorced him when he was kicked out. Um, and he comes back and they see the tattoo on his back. They confront him about it and basically force him. It either they cut it off or they burn it off. And this is the show I'm watching during my workday. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all I've been watching. Fun show. I'm enjoying it. Maybe not the best for a background show during your workday, but it works for me. <laughs> Charlie Hunnam is gorgeous. So there's that. Yeah, I I used to be able to watch more sh- like shows more in the background of things but I've been really struggling with that recently it would be very helpful to get back into uh, into watching um, certain things but I think one of the things is uh, right now one of the jobs I do is uh, captioning videos and so obviously you can't do it for that Yeah. and so even though I could do it for some of the other stuff I work on I don't know it's just it just doesn't fit in yeah um, yeah I just I, I can't deal with silence which probably says something about, about me. <laughs> so I have to have something playing. So if I'm like really hard focusing, it'll usually just be music. Mm. But if, if I'm just doing like admin bullshit or whatever, then I'll throw a show on in the background or a podcast. I do still do that with, yeah, YouTube. But YouTube is just like, it's so easy to turn on and off without considering it. But if I rewatch shows, I probably would do that more. I just so rarely rewatch so shows. Yeah, I find podcasts are really good um, and for that I too. And I keep up with a lot of YouTube, so I'm always out of podcasts, funnily enough. Like, I do have more podcasts to listen to, but, like, I'm very specific about which podcasts I'm willing to listen to at a time. Um, like, I have to be in a right frame of familiarity with the people, with the podcasters. And so... Maybe this is why we're languishing. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to re- recommend, then, Geeks of the Week. Yeah, I have them. It's a fun one. But okay, so... We watched The Guest for today's episode. I love it. <laughs> Which, uh, how would you describe it? Seven, you were saying 70s yeah. grindhouse. It's it's sort of like a modern take on a 70s grindhouse action film meets a late 70s, early 80s slasher film. So think anything that your parents would have seen on a like Saturday night at the drive-in for five bucks meets like The Hitcher. <laughs> Probably is right. the most like re- I would say vibe wise the most relatable slasher flick would be The Hitcher, which came out in like 1979, or m- maybe Halloween. You know, there's some Michael Myersy aspects, mm-hmm. but I think our antagonist here is a lot more enigmatic than you get from a Michael Myers type. 
So. Yeah. So it was directed by Adam Wingard Mm -hmm. and it stars Dan Stevens as David or the guest and Micah Monroe as their daughter, the family's daughter, Anna, and Sheila Kelly as Mrs. Peterson. Yeah, the dad is uh, Leland Orser. Adam Wingard has directed a bunch of horror movies, um, but he did VHS 1 and 2, which are really interesting sort of found footage, vignette-style horror films. Very strange, kind of unsettling. Um, And he also directed You Are Next, which is a fantastic slasher film a la Most Dangerous Game kind of vibe. Really, really, really good. The writer on The Guest has actually paired with Adam Wingard a couple of times. So he paired right. with him on The Guest, also on VHS 1 and 2, and You're Next. So they've worked together a few times, which is cool. And then for the actors, I mean, Dan Stevens, you'll definitely recognize him. He was in Beauty and the Beast. He played Beast, the live-action version. And he did uh, Downton Abbey. He was in several seasons of Downton mm-hmm. Abbey. Micah Monroe, probably best recognized from It Follows. She's also going to be in a movie called Flashback coming out soon with Dylan O'Brien. So lots of really talented people involved in this movie. Yeah. So it was filmed 2014, but it takes place in a kind of vaguely early 2000s, it seems, based on the ability to burn CDs is involved in it. But it still has like a retro-y look. And the film graining they use looks kind of somewhere between 70s to 90s film grain style, which might have still been in the 2000s. Like Donnie Darko still had some of it going on, but... I mean, by 2014, I think they'd moved on to digital cameras by then, but... For sure 2014, um, but I'm saying, I'm not sure if they meant it to be older than the movie's actual thing or meant to be like the exact age of the movie, which is supposed to be like 2000, let's say two. Yeah, like the movie is definitely supposed to be early 2000s based on the technology they have access to. But the set design, the coloring, the camera techniques lend itself much more to those 70s, 80s films I was mentioning in the beginning. Right. And I think that was intentional. I think it's supposed to evoke the imagery of those like Friday, Saturday night double features at the at the drive in. Right. And that's where you're going to see these like classic slasher flicks, classic mm-hmm. grindhouse flicks from the 70s and 80s. Um, so I don't think it was necessarily to transport you to a time. I think it was supposed to give you the aesthetic energy vibe of a traditional grindhouse flick, but bringing it into a modern era. I think it was supposed to be an intentional melding. Yeah. I liked how. I was surprised at where the storyline went. So it begins with David, the guest, sort of entering the house like right away as a friend of the family's dead son who was in the military. And, you know, what? I, one thing I mentioned when we were watching was that it seems like the camera really follows David throughout the whole thing, but he's in a way clearly not the protagonist. He is, he's the person that you're, not sure about. You don't know why he's here or what he's up to. And I could not have predicted what the actual storyline was. And I think it's coherent and make like it, it goes fair enough. But I can't say, even though that's true, I can't say I was totally totally satisfied by it. Like I I guess for me, I want the movie to make not it's not that it doesn't make sense, but I want it to be more interesting or have something more to say Mm. but this as you're saying it's more connected to a a type of storyline that you know was just to get the action into just to get yeah you were you were looking for more depth and that's totally valid this is not the movie necessarily for depth i think there are some things you can take from it but it's it's really like supposed to be an entertainment piece that evokes a certain feel um a certain image it's supposed to make you feel like a grindhouse action, like a slasher flick. It's supposed to keep you on the edge of your seat, give you like really intense moments, that kind of thing. And it's supposed to be a bit of a thriller, like, and a bit campy, a bit kitschy, a bit over the top and melodramatic. Um, And those are the aspects I love about it because I I really feel like they succeeded in creating this like perfect vibe, perfect energy for what they were trying to do, for where they were trying to transport you. The issue is 
it's paying homage to so many things. Yeah. And I get, firstly, I don't, the 70s, that kind of stuff isn't my favorite genre thing anyway. So I'm, but in addition, I just, I feel like homage often, it's like it should be, like to me, the, the movie was the homage just done really, really well. Like it didn't really explore anything much further than that for me. Um, and so I wonder on it from that view. But when it comes to style points and feeling and vibe, I mean, we said it a million times during the movie, but the soundtrack is just incredible. Oh. That Stranger Things like synth vibe all the way through, almost a playlist that lasts, a soundtrack lasts all the way through in the synth yeah. track I think, like, with a few other songs mixed in. The sound design in general, just as, even outside of the soundtrack, right. but the sound design in general, I think is incredibly successful for me because it's sort of, it's it's exaggerated, but not aggressively over the top, right? So when you hear him crash through a window, it's more over like intense of a sound than you would see in an action movie today. When you hear like blood coming out of a wound, it oozes more intensely, more loudly, when yep. he ties off a wound, it squelches like right in your ear. It's just it's that kind of thing that is so effective at transporting you into this world. Right. It's supposed to be this sort of campy over the top, but not so far over the edge that it yeah. creates like something so niche that you wouldn't love it. That it's so directly an homage that it's almost Tarantino-esque. I would say if 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 he went to yeah, that degree. Yeah, I mean, you're, it was reminding me of uh, Tarantino's Grindhouse, like the that sense of the the sound design and the things, but it isn't nearly as over the top as you're saying. Yeah, and I think you know, I, I'm not saying that the guest is better than every Tarantino movie. I know I shit on Tarantino a lot, um, <laughs> but Tarantino does the exact same thing, right? Like everything he does is an homage to another genre. Yes, he's not creating anything directly new with any of his movies. He has the grindhouse feature, which is obviously just a seventies grindhouse film. The kill bill movies are direct, almost ripoffs of Asian cinema that was popular in the seventies. And like all of these are homages, but they're so aggressive. So over the top that they almost go to a degree that lacks originality for me. Um, and I'm not saying Adam Wingard's The Guest is the best homage to this genre ever created. It's probably not. But I do think it is really captivating. I do think it's really fun. And I think it gives you a nice melding of two eras. You have that 70s, 80s vibe, but it still brings it into a more modern world. I, I feel similarly about another movie that the lead actress, uh, uh, Micah Monroe, was in, It Follows, where it gives you this very specific aesthetic that feels 70s, 80s, but it still feels modern enough, you know? Like, it feels like a world that could exist within, like, your own timeline. Yeah. I think for me, like, firstly, with Tarantino homages, often I don't know the reference material very well, if at all. So, like, that's helping me feel it's fresh. But regardless of that... I do think, like, compared to the guest, my big thing would just be that Tarantino's characters are just as stylized as his action and and feeling and soundtrack and all that stuff. So he's just, he's a, every bit of his movies is like a meme, is a style, is a feeling. And as, as much as there isn't that much substance behind it, the, you know, everything is iconic. Every piece of his movies are iconic. And so that's why they get so much praise by people who are coming to cinema for the first time because they're so accessible and so flashy, even if they don't have much depth on a rewatch. And they're using hum like homage as I'm taking the best things stylistically of old movies and bringing them to a modern era. You know, the best camera techniques, the best cinematography, the best color scheming or whatever of the time. And so they look really good. Yeah, I have problems with Tarantino. I think there's like he's way too beloved by, you know, film dudes and whatnot. <laughs> but I love his movies and they're just such easy watches so it is it can be a frustrating back and forth and a lot of these conversations we've been having right like i you know as i said historically i loved nolan too and so it's troublesome it's troublesome and i and i want to increase my <laughs> repertoire of films that i love i'm not and like look as much as i shit on nolan or i shit on tarantino 
I'm I'm never going to say that there's absolutely no value in in movies made by these mm. men. That's simply not true. It's the same with Scorsese. I have a lot of problems with Scorsese as a director, as a writer, as anything. But I, I'm never going to tell you that there's no value to be found in movies made by these men. There absolutely is. My problem with Tarantino's homage is that he's he moved in a direction where it stopped being an homage and it started being him directly plagiarizing black exploitation films and Asian cinema right. and just whitewashing them. And that's a problem because he's not adding anything or exploring anything within that genre. He's taking iconic costumes, iconic locations that are directly from these hyper popular films in their like communities and making them white people. And that's, kind of fucked up. Like that's what we saw in Kill yeah. Bill where he's taking like the iconic Bruce Lee, like yellow track suit from one of the most famous Asian films that he was in and putting it on a white woman and then making everyone watch her kill like a room full of 40 Asian men. And that's kind of really fucked up and problematic, but I do still have this really soft spot for Reservoir Dogs, I do still love Jackie Brown, even though it is pretty much a ripoff of black exploitation films made with black actors and black writers. And like, th there's some kind of line here that I feel like he's crossing more and more. And then there's, you know, the whole Not Pulp Fiction. You've delegated that to the bin. I just haven't seen it as many times, so I didn't feel like bringing it mm. up. <laughs> Like I yeah. love the movie Jackie no, Brown. Yeah, no, because it's it's the one that we always it's it's the one that we always make fun of because it's the one film bros always say is like the number one movie. It is also the most obvious choice to shit on when you're like being a contrarian about yeah. Tarantino to say like, well, here's the problems with Pulp Fiction. It's a boring take. <laughs> here's the problems with the fact that like he is pretty overtly racist and misogynistic, in the fact that he will always brutally violate women in his movies to mm. a degree that he never will men. You know, that's an issue. The fact that he's bordering on foot fetish porn is a fucking weird thing to do. The fact that for yeah. authenticity, he needs to choke his female actresses on screen himself on camera himself and can't put in a stunt double for this. It has to be his hands physically wrapped around the throat of another woman. That's fucking weird. Like, yeah. there are deep-seated problems in his work, and his views are very prominent. And the fact that that doesn't get talked about or analyzed and it gets glossed over by so many people because he's, like, stylistically interesting while overtly plagiarizing constantly is fucking weird to me. Whereas, like, The Guest, it may not be as ostentatious as a Tarantino movie, it doesn't feel nearly as degrading mm. while still getting all of that action and explosions and gore and ridiculousness of a grindhouse movie. Yeah. I think it, I think it can be tricky as a more independent or lower budget film though, to go that route. Cause I did think it was done well, um, but they only could have a few scenes where he really like goes off or the action is really spectacular because that's, you know, that's part of what budget is. And you can really feel the budget in those scenes where you see like, okay, they're going to have four soldiers or they're going to have a, yeah. you know, sort of thing here. And it's just like, yeah, you get it. But, you know, if you if you can do that right, like if you can get that close-knit thriller feeling with action, I mean, that's where low-budget horror shines is that because you can do things in closed rooms, because you can do the intense moments with so few set pieces, so few special effects now are gonna have a lot of special effects but like tight-knit special effects um it helps too it's not a cgi you know dragon coming in yeah and so there are tricks that can do well and i and i liked the way it did it sort of sort this weird like not hyperspeed but sort of camera zooms things move a little bit too quick moments uh to like get that feeling of uh special effects or i'm not even sure what to call it but it's it was solid yeah, and that's a camera trick. You'll see that kind of camera trip where like somebody turns their face really quickly and it does a fast zoom in, that type of thing. Yeah. Super common in um, Asian cinema and like those old school kung fu movies, right. actually. You'd see that all the time. And also in just 70s like grindhouse action films, like those cheap B movies. That's a constant. And I think it was an intentional choice, not only because of budget, 
uh, or wanting to be like stylistically interesting, but to pay again, homage, further homage to those genres. And it did look cool. I also like the fact that while this has over the top action moments, the first act of this film is almost devoid of any kind of like graphic or gratuitous violence. And it's very like eerie Mm -hmm. thriller character driven. Yeah. So you get this like real tight knit relationship with your antagonist, David character and the family. And as you had mentioned, like even though David is the central figure, we follow him and his journey. The majority of this film, at least for the first two acts, it really does feel like this whole family is your main character and David is the outlier antagonist, despite the fact that we spend more time with him. And I find that like that's such an interesting choice to me that you can effectively evoke the feeling of this being a bad person, like the negative influence in this movie, and yet spend the majority of the time following that person's journey. Yeah. Yeah, they really do a good job with the that thriller feeling at the beginning. And and I couldn't figure out the twists. I think it does that good job of keeping you on your toes as to what's going on here, why the character's doing. And I loved the feeling that he seemed to want to help the family maybe, but it was like a strange way he was doing it. So it gave maybe, you know, monkey's paws and the right thing, but this kind of like dangerous, like, oh, if he does help the family, then might he do it in like a scary way because yeah. he's like the villain? You had said like, um, I think you said like deal with the devil kind of thing where like he'll do anything for you. He'll make sure you get what you want, but there's going to be a whole host of negative consequences. And, And I think that's a really accurate way to explain it. I don't know. I just Dan Stevens, I feel like was spectacular in that role. I like he, Mm -hmm. he was very understated, but really like hit his marks on the energy for that character. And it was so effective for me. Whereas like, I can't imagine any other actor in that role pulling that off being like, you know, Southern kind of proper gentleman, but very intense and like seething kind of aggro feel under the surface. It was just perfect for me. Yep. It was a very unique, iconic character. And I think, that's sort of one of the unfortunate things though, like none of the other characters are really memorable. And so you do have a kind of like things, which is often the case with horror movies, right? It's like only the killer, only the person has any has any real kind of memorability. Um, and so that's fine, but it does, it does lead it to be like, it's a very him focused film. Yeah. I do think like, I mean, the brother had some really funny moments um, that I enjoyed. The dad had some mm. really funny moments interacting with David that's true. That were like very funny, especially in that first act. Like very dad really moments, yeah. Weird dad tension moments that were really funny and felt very like relatable to your own family dynamic. But for the most part, yeah, it is it is a fairly like one dimensional kind of film. Like the only character driven aspect of it is David, but it works for the genre that it's trying to live in. It's not a movie so much about the characters as it is about the journey and the like thrills and the action that bring you to the final conclusion. And so much synth. I just loved all the synth. I think that's it for me, honestly. Yeah. No, that's fine. I was hoping. I love like, I I mean, I had some more stuff to relate (laughs) to, but. I have a big soft spot for these like horror thriller movies that evoke a particular Mm. time period or vibe um, from that genre, like it follows, gives you a very retro feel, a very specific vibe of older movies. Same with, um, oh God, uh, The House of the Devil, which is a phenomenal homage to like old school exorcism poltergeist kind of movies. And they use like the specific fonts from those old movies in their title cards. Mm. The soundtracks have a lot of like synth. There's a lot of film grain or sepia tones. They use like costuming to evoke these like images that draw you back to old movies like, you know, Poltergeist or Halloween or The Hitcher or whatever. But they tell a brand new story with it. Yeah, no, I I think overall the movie is successful at what it does. It's just not my favorite thing. (laughs) And so I think that's where I'd, I'd put it as. And that's totally fair. I mean, it's it's definitely not a movie with like a whole 
host of like intellectual interpretations behind it. It's just a fun ride, you know, and it has a huge amount of rewatchability as somebody who's seen it before rewatched it tonight with you. It is very rewatchable. It's very much like a popcorn flick that you'd want to see at the drive-in with your friends. Mm. All right. So if you want to check us out on Twitter, you can find us at fans lab pod. And if you want to find us on any other social media, just look us up. Uh, fans labyrinth yes and uh, because we have a bunch of different names so you'll have to yeah if you search fans labyrinth on tiktok on instagram on twitter you will find us you can also email us at fans lab or fans labyrinth pod at gmail.com if you want to watch the guest if you're in canada it is on netflix if you're not in canada google it because i don't (laughs) know (laughs) but thank you for listening thanks for listening bye Bye.